This is a rebroadcast of the 2017 Study Smarter series, a collection of our mini-episodes for microbiology. If you want more high-yield on-the-go learning for your USMLE step prep, check out the Inside the Boards All Audio Q-Bank. We feature content in our first and second year version from Osmosis and Lecturio. And for the third year version, we currently have content covering medicine, pediatrics, and surgery from Online MedEd. Go to InsideTheBoards.com to join our mailing list for a special offer. Or for immediate access, go to InsideTheBoards.Podbean.com. If you sign up on Podbean, you also will get an ITB so-called premium subscription where we will be putting up ad-free versions of the podcast, which you can listen to on the Podbean app on your Android or Apple device, as well as early releases and collections of our board's advice segments, the Med School Minute with Sahil Mehta, the StatMed Lessons with Ryan Orwig, and the Kaplan Test Prep Minute with Chris Semino, Vice President and Chief Medical Officer, of Kaplan Medical. Thanks for listening and enjoy. I'm back today with another one of our mini episodes for the microbiology portion of the Study Smarter series. Our question today is, a 23-year-old woman comes to urgent care because of two days of mild fever and painful urination. The patient states that she's been urinating more frequently and does not feel as though she's fully emptied her bladder. She denies seeing blood in her urine, abnormal discharge, fatigue, or increased thirst. She's not currently sexually active and states that she has a regular menstrual period. Physical examination is unremarkable. Urine culture detects the presence of a gram-negative rod bacteria. Which of the following virulence factors contributes to the pathophysiology of the most likely microorganism causing this patient's symptoms? And the choices are A, exotoxin A, B, IgA protease, C, P, pilus, D, P1 antigen, or E, protein A. And the correct answer is C, P, pilus. The patient in this question most likely has a UTI. We know this by the painful urination, more frequent urination. And the most common cause of UTIs is E. coli. E. coli is a gram-negative rod. It's part of the normal gut flora. Most E. coli strains are innocuous, however, several strains are pathogenic and can colonize the urinary tract. There's an enterotoxigenic form of E. coli, that's the E-TEC, enteropathogenic, which is E-PEC, enteroinvasive, which is E-I-E-C, and enterohemorrhagic, which is E-HEC. E. coli has several different virulence factors. Pili is just one of them. It also has a K-capsule, lipopolysaccharides in the membrane. Uropathogenic strains that cause urinary tract infections express a specific P. pilus which binds to GAL-1,4 on uroepithelial cells and allows the bacteria to colonize the bladder. Infection typically occurs when the urethra is exposed to fecal bacteria. The bacteria eventually reach the bladder and, depending on severity, may reach the kidneys. Because women have a shorter urethra, they are more susceptible to infection. Women with a urinary tract infection typically present with painful urination, dysuria, and mild fever. Medical history and laboratory studies can confirm the diagnosis. Treatment is with antibiotics. To review quickly the other wrong answer choices you might have been tempted by, we have exotoxin A, 
You may remember exotoxin A is a virulence factor released by Pseudomonas aeruginosa. It functions by inactivating elongation factor 2 and results in host cell death. Remember, elongation factor 2 is part of DNA replication. Something that you should know about Pseudomonas, other than that it creates exotoxin A, is that it is known to have a blue-green pigment, it has a fruity odor when it's grown in the lab, and also it is an encapsulated organism like many of our other bacteria, it uses that as one of its virulence factors, that capsule. The other organisms we know of that have capsules include Streptococcus pneumoniae, Haemophilus influenza, and Neisseria meningitidis. Remember, people without spleens are especially susceptible to infections with encapsulated organisms. Choice B, IgA protease, that is an enzyme secreted by several different bacteria, Strep pneumoniae, H. influenzae type B, and Neisseria. The IgA protease is the virulence factor that's used in order for these bacteria to colonize the respiratory tract and create pneumonia. The P. pilus we already discussed, that was choice C, and the correct answer associated with the E. coli and its virulence factors. Choice D, the P1 antigen. The P1 antigen is the primary virulence factor for mycoplasma. Mycoplasma genitalium can infect the urethra, so that can be a little bit tricky. But it doesn't really infect the bladder. For this reason, we don't classify it usually as a urinary tract infection. It could have had these similar symptoms, certainly. However, the vignette describes the bacteria as a gram-negative rod bacteria. Mycoplasma is actually one of the bacteria that doesn't have a cell wall. For that reason, it doesn't really gram stain. So we would never hear a description of it being a gram-negative, gram-positive bacteria. The other ones that don't gram stain well include treponema, legionella, rickettsia, chlamydia, bartonella. These all don't gram stain well. We do know mycoplasma is a very common cause of atypical pneumonia. Choice E, protein A, is a virulence factor expressed by Staph aureus. It binds the FC region of IgG and prevents opsonization and phagocytosis. And we have a whole episode that we've already talked a lot about Staph aureus. Recommend checking that one out. The things you should know about E. coli are that there are different strains that act in different ways. So let's run through them really quick. E. heck enterohemorrhagic E. coli has a shiga-like toxin that is an rRNA, reverse RNA, and it enhances cytokine release, causing hemolytic uremic syndrome. Unlike Shigella, which can also cause this, E. heck doesn't invade host cells. So that would be the difference pathogenically of how those two work. For enterotoxigenic E. coli, it produces a heat labile and a heat stable toxin. The heat labile toxin overactivates adenylate cyclase, increasing CAMP, and increases chloride secretion into the gut. Where chloride goes, water will follow. Water goes into the gut, and there's lots of diarrhea. Making this worse is the heat stable toxin, also released by ETEC. That overactivates guanylate cyclase, increases CGMP and decreases resorption of sodium chloride salt from the gut, and therefore more water stays in the gut, makes the diarrhea even worse. So remember, watery diarrhea is a labile in the air, labile in air, adenylate cyclase, and stable on the ground. Stable goes with G for ground, goes with guanylate cyclase. E. coli is a gram-negative rod. It has multiple different virulence factors, including fimbri that can lead to cystitis, even pyelonephritis with the P. pili, has a K capsule, which leads to pneumonia, can cause neonatal meningitis, has an LPS endotoxin, which leads to septic shock, 
and the different presentations of the different strains. EIEC has microbes that invade intestinal mucosa and cause necrosis and inflammation. This is invasive and leads to dysentery. Looks like Shigella. ETEC, enterotoxigenic E. coli, produces the heat label and heat stable enterotoxins. Doesn't have any inflammation and no invasion of cells. Causes the watery traveler's diarrhea. EPEC doesn't produce a toxin at all. It adheres to apical surfaces, flattens the villi, and prevents absorption. This leads to diarrhea, usually in kids. You can remember P for peds, P for EPEC. And EHEC is the one associated with that 0157H7, the most common serotype in the U.S., and leads to dysentery-like diarrhea. The toxin alone causes necrosis and inflammation, and it's hemorrhagic, um, transmitted through hamburgers, and can lead to hemolytic uremic syndrome like Shigella does. So that's E. coli. Welcome back, Boards Insiders. I'm Elizabeth Beeman, and I have another microbiology episode for you today. And let's get started. The question is, a 25-year-old patient with no known history is brought to the emergency department by police who found him wandering the streets naked. Patient is disinhibited, repeatedly undressing, and refusing to keep his clothing on. Vital signs show a blood pressure of 123 over 70, heart rate of 95, temperature of 102.1, and a respiratory rate of 17. Physical examination reveals a patient with a left facial droop and ataxic gait. The patient's speech is pressured. He's confused and says, I'm the king of the museum. I'm president of the world. Fingers to glucose is 100. Urine drug screen is negative for cocaine, THC, amphetamines, and opiates. Serum ethanol is negative. Head CT is pending. Lumbar puncture in the emergency room is significant for lymphocytic pleocytosis, increased number of erythrocytes, and elevated protein, with a glucose within normal range for CSF. Which of the following conditions is most associated with the most likely causative organism affecting this patient? Answer choices are A. Endocarditis, B. Gingivostomatitis, C. Dermatologic gumas, or D. Otitis media. And the correct answer is B. Gingivostomatitis. So let's think about this question and what the first causative organism is that we're talking about. So we have a patient with an unknown history, urine drug screens all negative, doesn't have elevated glucose. That's something that we might be thinking about if we didn't know the patient's history. Maybe they're in diabetic ketoacidosis. Doesn't have alcohol in his blood and his vital signs are generally okay, except for he is showing a fever of 102.1, but he's hemodynamically stable with a normal blood pressure, slightly elevated heart rate, but, but still normal, and pretty normal respiratory rate of 17. He's very disinhibited. So things we might be thinking of, just based on that disinhibited pressured speech picture, you're going to be thinking, obviously, about a psychiatric disorder. At least it should be on the differential. Definitely want to rule out medical causes first. And we would be thinking about like a first break, maybe a manic episode, or maybe since we don't know the history, maybe this patient has a history of mania, that kind of thing. But we get a little bit more suspicious by the fact that he also has a fever right now. He's got a left facial droop. That doesn't go with a primary psychiatric disorder. And a toxic gait. 
So he's not able to walk properly. Left side of his face isn't moving. He's got a fever. They go ahead and do a lumbar puncture. And he has a lymphocytic pleocytosis. So he's increased lymphocytes in the CSF and an increased number of erythrocytes, increased protein. And this is the key here, a normal glucose. So when we think of our lumbar puncture results and we're thinking of what are we really looking for? Well, we're looking for signs of meningitis. We're looking for signs in a lumbar puncture that the patient might have an infection in the central nervous system. We could also be looking for a hemorrhage. We can see blood. We could be looking for cancer. But primarily with this presentation, we're looking for an infection. This patient has the elevated protein, does have elevated lymphocytes, which we we will associate with a viral infection rather than a bacterial infection, and a normal glucose for CSF. The cerebrospinal fluid does have a normal amount of glucose in it. During a bacterial meningitis, this glucose should be expected to be actually decreased. You can think the bacteria is actually using the glucose for energy to duplicate and replicate. So in this patient, we're thinking this is probably a viral meningitis. And then we have a very specific presentation for the viral meningitis where this patient is very disinhibited. To give a little bit more clues, these patients can be very sexually inappropriate. They can have hyperorality, hyperphagia. We see this as part of the syndrome called Kluver-Busey syndrome. And what it is, is bilateral amygdala lesions. So it makes sense why lesions to the amygdala would cause those kind of behavioral issues. But we see this as an association with an HSV-1 encephalitis. So it's a viral encephalitis, so it fits our CSF findings. But we also will see patients to have things like paralysis. They may look like they have had a stroke. They can have seizures, really any focal neurologic signs. But the most common um, being this presentation where their behavioral issues very disinhibited and bilateral amygdala lesions being the pathology for this with HSV-1 encephalitis being the causative organism. So when we know that HSV-1 is the or HSV is the causative organism, then which of our options does HSV also cause frequently? And we had endocarditis, gingivostomatitis, dermatologic gumas, or otitis media. The answer is, of course, gingivostomatitis. The gingivostomatitis associated with herpes, HSV1, herpes simplex virus 1, um, is a painful swollen gum syndrome. The mucous membranes will also be swollen. It will have the vesicles that are classic to be seen with any herpes virus. Fever and systemic symptoms can also be be present, and this is a disease that usually lasts several weeks. And you will diagnose this based on the clinical picture. You'll see the patient with the vesicles, uh, again, on the gums and mucous membranes, and that is concerning for the diagnosis of herpes, uh, gingivostomatitis. Let's talk a little bit more about herpes viruses. So we have herpes simplex virus 1. We have herpes simplex virus 2. We have 
varicella zoster virus, which we have talked about before in another episode, so we won't talk as much about it here, but just to know that like the other herpes viruses, it's in the same family and it is a enveloped, double-stranded, and linear virus. We also have Epstein-Barr virus, which is also called HHV4. Remember, Epstein-Barr virus is the one that causes mononucleosis. Mono is commonly termed the kissing bug, but what you need to remember is that fever is a big problem with mono and that hepatosplenomegaly is a big concern because these patients are at increased risk for splenic rupture and should avoid, especially during the resolving phase of this illness, should avoid contact sports and things where they're likely to have high impact. Also, Epstein-Barr virus is good to know for step one because of the association with lymphomas, like Burkitt's lymphoma specifically, and then also nasopharyngeal cancers. Epstein-Barr virus, again, it's HHV4, is a virus that infects B cells through CD21 and can be tested for with a monospot test, which is a heterophile antibody test that detects agglutination of sheep or horse red blood cells. The atypical lymphocytes of mono are seen on peripheral blood smears. Cytomegalovirus, or HHV5, is another one of our herpes viruses. We think about CMV a lot because it is one of our torch infections. Congenital uh, transfusion can occur. Uh, can also be transmitted through sexual contact or saliva. It causes a mononucleosis type picture, but has a negative mono spot because it is not mono in immunocompromised patients specifically, especially can cause pneumonia in like transplant patients. In an AIDS patient, CMV actually will cause a retinitis. And if you'll remember this, the pathology is that the infected cells have characteristic owl eye inclusions. Human herpes virus 6 is transmitted by saliva, and it's also called roseola infantum. This involves high fevers for several days that can lead to seizures in tiny babies and is followed by a diffuse macular rash. To talk specifically about our causative organism herpes again, remember that herpes can be identified with viral culture if it's present on skin or genitalia. A CSF PCR for herpes encephalitis is what is clinically indicated for the patient that we have in the vignette. However, because that can take time to come back, we start empirically treating the patient when we have the suspicion for this viral uh, infection, this viral encephalitis. We just start treating them right away with a cyclovir and this is actually one of the treatable forms of encephalitis. So very good to get treatment started as soon as possible. While we definitely think of herpes as being herpes simplex 1 and herpes simplex 2 as being most associated with the vesicles and cold sores in, in the herpes simplex 1 or the canker sores of the mouth and in herpes simplex 2 genital ulcers and vesicles, we can actually see either one of these affecting either area. So there can be oral lesions that are due to HSV2. There can be genital lesions that are due to HSV1. But there's also other things caused by HSV1 and 2. For example, 
erythema multiform is associated with previous HSV infection. We also can see esophagitis as a primary infection with herpes simplex virus, especially though we'll see this as a reactivation of herpes in immunocompromised patients, such as patients with AIDS. Now, we've been talking a lot about a clinical picture that relates pretty well to encephalitis. Encephalitis is associated very strongly with HSV-1. Meningitis is associated a little bit more strongly with HSV-2. Remember, encephalitis is inflammation of the brain, and meningitis is inflammation and infection of the meninges. So back to the testing for herpes. Remember that SANC, T-Z-A-N-C-K, ZANC test, is done in order to detect multinucleated giant cells that are commonly seen in a smear of these open skin vesicles that you can find in herpes lesions. And you would see these with HSV-1, HSV-2, and actually also zoster, varicella zoster um, viral infection. Intranuclear inclusions are also seen with all three of these viruses. And remember that herpes is also one of our torches infections. It can pass from mother to baby, most often during delivery from genital lesions that are present at the time of birth and will most often present with the painful, pruritic vesicles that we associated with HSV2. However, it is at an increased risk of progressing to something like encephalitis, which is the reason that we worry about it in newborns. To address our wrong answer choices, A, endocarditis. You might have chosen endocarditis if you correctly identified that this patient had some kind of infectious central nervous system process going on and that you thought that this was a bacterial infection, which we know it wasn't because the glucose was normal in the CSF. Maybe you thought it was, and maybe you thought it was caused by strep viridens. Strep viridens is a group B strep that does cause endocarditis. In fact, we think of it more with patients with recent dental surgeries because strep viridens is found in the oral mucosa. Uh, it is actually the most common cause of meningitis in babies. This patient is not a baby, also not consistent with a bacterial meningitis in the clinical presentation. But if we had had these things in the vignette, maybe that would have been the right answer. Gingivostomatitis was the correct answer. We talked about that. Herpes encephalitis is what is what our diagnosis was. Choice C, dermatologic gumas. We know gumas are from syphilis. Neurosyphilis does occur in about 8% of untreated cases. Neurosyphilis presents a little bit differently though. So a patient with neurosyphilis or a vignette that might have described a patient with neurosyphilis might have described someone with either a normal patient who got a cerebrospinal fluid that tests positive for syphilis, sometimes they are asymptomatic. More often, we have a subacute kind of meningitis picture. They have like the fever, stiff neck, headache that we associate with meningitis. And that CSF analysis would show the high lymphocytes, high protein, but most importantly, the low glucose and a positive syphilis test if we also got that. As an aside, treponema pallidum and mycobacterium tuberculosis are two of the bacteria that cause a subacute meningitis with a predominance of lymphocytes. So 
even though most bacterial meningitis will cause an elevated neutrophil count, we do have these two, treponema and mycobacterium tuberculosis, that can infect the meninges and actually lead to a CSF that has a predominance of lymphocytes. It's kind of an important difference to remember. So how would we tell the difference between that and a viral infection? Even with treponema pallidum and mycobacterium tuberculosis, you're going to expect to see the decreased glucose that you don't see with viral infections. And then choice D was tabustor salis. Another presentation of neurosyphilis can be a meningovascular syphilis, where the spirochetes that are in syphilis basically latch onto our blood vessels in the brain and the meninges, think about the circle of Willis and cause basically strokes, uh, infarction of nerve tissue in the brain, spinal cord, meninges, anywhere. These people can have all kinds of different neurologic impairments. And then another presentation that we can see for neurosyphilis is tabustorsalis. Tabustorsalis is kind of the classic textbook one we think about that affects the spinal cord and specifically the posterior column and dorsal roots. Patients with tabustorsalis are going to present with progressive sensory ataxia, like impaired proprioception, very poor coordination. And you also will associate tabustrosalis with the Charcot joints, shooting pain in the Argyle-Robertson pupils. Remember, Argyle-Robertson pupils accommodate, but they don't react. A patient with tabustrosalis may have a physical exam with no deep tendon reflexes, and a positive Romberg sign. And our last answer choice was otitis media. You could be thinking otitis media if you thought the causative organism was streptomonia. Streptomonia does cause meningitis and bacterial pneumonia in adults. But again, we would expect the decreased glucose in the CSF, and it's certainly not one of the ones where we would see a lymphocytic pleocytosis most commonly. We would expect an elevated neutrophil count instead. So otitis media, not the most common complication associated with herpes, but it is a, a complication, obviously, an infection type associated with strep pneumonia. Well, that is all for our herpes episode, and I will see you again soon. Welcome back, Boards Insiders. I'm your host, Elizabeth Beeman. And I've got another microbiology episode for you today as part of our Study Smarter series to get you prepared for step one. So let's get started. Our question today is, a 27-year-old man comes to the emergency department because of a fever. His past medical history is significant for HIV, which has not been well controlled in the past because of poor adherence to antiretroviral therapy. His temperature is 38.3 degrees Celsius or 101 degrees Fahrenheit. Pulse is 70 to a minute. Respirations are 16 a minute. And blood pressure is 120 over 80 millimeters of mercury. Physical examination shows several painless, white, irregular-shaped plaques on the right oral mucosa. They cannot be scraped off using a tongue depressor. There is no associated erythema or swelling. Which of the following is most likely associated with this presentation? A. Aspergillus fumigatus, B. Candida albicans, C. Cytomegalovirus, D. Epstein-Barr virus, or E. Herpes simplex virus. And the correct answer is D. Epstein-Barr virus. And how did we come to that correct answer? 
Our diagnosis for this patient is also known as oral hairy leukoplakia. It is one presentation of Epstein-Barr virus that we specifically see in immunocompromised patients like those with AIDS. Unlike thrush or oral candidiasis, um, the lesions of oral hairy leukoplakia cannot be scraped off the tongue or buccal mucosa. So this episode is a good time for us to talk a little bit more about HIV. What you need to know about HIV is that it is an enveloped RNA-type retrovirus that targets CD4 T cells and binds either CCR5 on macrophages in the early infection or CXCR4 on T cells in the late infection. You should know it's a single-stranded linear virus, and it contains a reverse transcriptase. Know that the preliminary test with a high sensitivity, meaning a lot of false positives, to test for HIV is an ELISA, but the confirmatory test, which will rule out those false positives, is a Western blot. That is something that could come up on step one. The risk factors for HIV transmission include sexual activity, blood transfusion, although this is a very, very, very rare, and needle sharing and sticks. Also, it can be transmitted transplacentally um, without any kind of treatment. It's actually as high as 30% of babies born to HIV-positive women will have HIV as well. However, in countries like America, where we have a lot of resources, the risk of transmitting HIV is actually less less than 2%, uh, much thanks to the medications that we can now give women during pregnancy and after pregnancy to prevent transmission. What does HIV look like? The initial presentation is like an acute viral illness, actually presents a lot like mononucleosis. Patients will get fever, malaise, lymphadenopathy, pharyngitis. This usually happens about a month after the initial exposure in about 80% of people. So at this stage, there's very high levels of the HIV virus in the blood. Uh, The viruses will spread to infect lymph nodes and, and macrophages. And the symptoms will eventually resolve. The viral load in the blood will decrease. However, the HIV will continue to replicate in the lymph nodes and peripheral blood. So then there's this latent period after the initial viremia. can last for a median of about eight years, in which you will not have any symptoms. Some people may have lymphadenopathy, but generally this is considered an asymptomatic kind of latent period. In the meantime, CD4 cells are steadily being destroyed, the CD4 T lymphocytes. These are obviously the number one target of HIV. Towards the end of the latent period, patients begin to develop bacterial and skin infections and may also be more likely to experience constitutional symptoms like weight loss or malaise or night sweats. AIDS will subsequently develop once the CD4 lymphocyte count drops below 200. So remember that number cutoff is 200. Also, another clinical indicator that the patient will now be classified as having AIDS is if they have one of the AIDS-defining opportunistic infections. These include candida esophagitis, pneumocystis carinii pneumonia, and the malignancy Kaposi sarcoma. Fortunately, now patients will receive antiretroviral therapy, and this has greatly improved the prognosis for patients who are diagnosed positive with HIV. 
Most patients, if not given any kind of treatment, will die of AIDS within two years of, or an average of two years after uh, the clinical definition of AIDS has been met as far as having contracted an AIDS-defining illness or having a CD4 count below 200. So that's kind of a quick review of what we want you to know about AIDS. Let's go back to our question and figure out why those other answer choices were incorrect. Choice A, Aspergillus fumigatus. Aspergillus is a cause of invasive disease in immunocompromised patients like pneumonia, angioinvasion, or invasive sinusitis, but it doesn't really cause an oral mucosal infection. Not clinically going to be associated with a picture of this white plaque on the tongue. Candida albicans does cause white plaques on the tongue or oral mucosa, but as we discussed, that's going to be called thrush. It's oral thrush. It is definitely seen more commonly in immunocompromised patients, but we would be able to scrape that off the tongue. Again, hairy leukoplakia is caused by Epstein-Barr, can't scrape off the tongue, and that's really the big difference you're going to see in a clinical vignette. Cytomegalovirus can cause retinitis in HIV patients. Specifically, this happens if they have a CD4 count less than 50, very low. And cytomegalovirus can cause esophagitis, colitis, pneumonitis, and encephalitis, also in HIV patients. We're going to see this happening if the CD4 count is less than 100. Remember, CMV is associated with the cells that have the intranuclear inclusion bodies, or ALZI appearance. Choice D, Epstein-Barr virus, was the correct answer and does cause hairy leukoplakia. Epstein-Barr virus is an opportunistic infection that, like CMV, is associated with a CD4 cell count less than 100. EBV can also cause B-cell lymphoma, like non-Hodgkin lymphoma and CNS lymphoma. The CNS lymphoma is ring-enhancing and maybe solitary versus toxoplasma, where we also see ring-enhancing lesions in HIV patients. However, these are going to usually be multiple different lesions. So that's how you know the difference between the CNS lymphoma, the Epstein-Barr virus, and toxoplasma brain abscesses. Speaking of which, toxoplasma gondii does cause brain abscesses also in patients with a CD4 count less than 100. Again, multiple ring-enhancing lesions will be seen on MRI. And then we come to choice E, herpes simplex virus. Herpes simplex virus, certainly a patient who is immunocompromised would be at an increased risk for a more systemic involvement of a herpes virus. You can think about herpetic encephalitis as a potential disease you might see in an HIV or AIDS-infected patient. However, it's not going to present with the perileukoplakia-type associated plaque that we saw in this clinical vignette. Blisters and sores in the mouth would definitely give us a clue that maybe this is some kind of herpetic infection. This patient didn't have that, so we are, have low suspicion that it would be a herpes simplex virus causing these symptoms. That's pretty much all we wanted to make sure that you knew for HIV. Also, since we did talk a little bit about candida, I'd like to just touch on a few important points to remember about as we said, candida does cause oral thrush with the scrapable white plaque and pseudohyphae on microscopy. That oral thrush will happen in an HIV patient that has a CD4 count less than 500. That's not even meeting criteria for AIDS at that point. But when the CD4 count gets even lower, less than 100, we worry about a more serious infection involving candida, which is the esophagitis. 
Candida and esophagitis will show white plaques on endoscopy, so they're further down, and yeast and pseudohyphae on biopsy. Not relating to HIV, Candida also is responsible for yeast infections, Candida vulvovaginitis. Uh, the signs of a Candida yeast infection would include inflammation and thick white also called cottage cheese discharge from the cervix, you're going to see on microscopy pseudohyphae. These patients, in opposition to patients with a trichomonal or bacterial vaginosis infection, patients with Canada have a normal pH. So remember that that's kind of the differentiating factor. If you have a person with white discharge and the pH is 4.0 to 4.5, you're going to be thinking about Canada vulvovaginitis. When we get into like a trichomonal infection, we think about a patient who has a vaginal pH greater than 4.5 or more basic pH. And we also think about that with a bacterial vaginosis or more basic pH greater than 4.5. That's how we tell candida vulvovaginitis from other similar appearing vaginal infections, if that's the only information we have. We can use amphotericin B to treat candida infections for, say, treating the esophagitis complication of Canada and HIV. The azoles are also good at treating Canada. And that's pretty much all we wanted you to know about HIV in Canada. So that's our brief overview of those two infectious pathogens. Thank you for listening, and we will see you on the next episode.